Star Wars, the Clone Wars. The heteronormative nature of classic literature. People who only read nonfiction, there's something wrong with them. It's a very Twelfth Night moment. Listening to Broadway musicals, always fine! Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm James Earl, just trying to find my true self in Milan, Italy. And I'm Melissa Hansen, always looking for the best one whiz wit yins. <laughs> Did I use that right? I actually have never lived in Pittsburgh, so I don't know how they use yins. <laughs> That's good. This month, we're reading She Gets the Girl by Rachel Lippincott and Allison Derrick. Uh, what is a yins? I know what a whiz with is. Like you get cheese whiz with onions on your cheesesteak. I literally, when I was writing notes for this book, I was like, why has no one used the word yins yet? Because it's a huge Pittsburgh thing. There's like two big Pittsburgh linguistic things. And one is using yins for y'all. Huh. Okay. The book could have reflected these linguistic quirks a little bit better is my, my first reading of the book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's important for authenticity. Authenticity, exactly. Okay, let's get into the book. Yeah, with spoilers, obviously. This podcast does not believe in spoilers. We're going to talk about the full work. So if that's important to you, then you should read it beforehand. However, it's not going to really matter. Like, you understand what's going to She gets the girl. It's in the title. Yeah, like, they, they, spoiler alert, it's in the title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess the question is the she. You don't know who she is and you don't know who the girl is. Right, right. For the first about half of the book, maybe a third of the book, I was curious whether or not this was going to be a story of like meaningful female friendship mm-hmm. and then other relationships, or it was going to get romantic between the two. I know. I had the exact same feeling at the end where it's like when you watch When Harry Met Sally and you're like, Ugh, I don't want this to prove the point that men and women can't be friends, Right. but you should definitely be together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's the feeling I had while reading this book. Yeah. And both of them are in deep need of having a peer who is a good friend of theirs as well. Like, neither of them really have that. Mm -hmm. They need both. They need to love and be loved in a romantic way, but they also need to love and be loved in a friendship way. So, like, both would have been satisfying. Yeah. All right. So we should do the summary. We're going to put one minute on the clock. Go. She gets the girl. Who's the she? Who's the girl? We don't know because it's a story about four lesbians. So first, there's Alex, who's from Philadelphia, hence the one whiz wit reference that I made earlier. And she has an alcoholic mother and an absentee father. And she has been dating this super cool indie musician, Natalie, for the past couple of months. And Natalie says, I love you. And Alex is just like, not know what to say. Because all she does is hook up with random people and never let feelings get into the way. They have a bit of a tiff. And Natalie is like, I don't know, you're going to college. So if you can promise to like be loyal to me during that time and that you can be a real person with real friends, maybe we can be together. So Alex goes to college where she meets Molly. Molly is a half Korean American girl who is from the suburbs of Pittsburgh and she is really dorky and she's been in love with Cora, the most popular girl from her high school for four years. And so Alex helps Molly get the girl who is Cora, dot, 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 or is it? (laughs) Okay, so... We've got two different narrators, two different authors, though I'll say I don't think I really identified a distinct writing voice for either of them. Like, the book clearly had a single editor because 
I feel like both of them were in the same sort of writing style. They had unique voices to some degree, but I was expecting with two different authors for things to be radically different than they weren't. I would say yes, but this is a version of the author's love story of how they fell in love in college. So they're basically stand-ins. So Alex is Rachel, and then Molly is Allison. Huh, I didn't do that research. (laughs) I did the research because... I wasn't quite sure if I was like offended by the Korean transracial adoption storyline. <laughs> <laughs> so I found interviews with Allison um, where she was talking about that. And she actually is the daughter of a transracial adoptee. Mm. And she talked about how she's actually been very hesitant to have Asian protagonists in her writing because she's like, oh, I'm not a real Asian American. I can't really speak to the experience. And then I felt really terrible. <laughs> that that was the read. I was like, is this a real Korean person writing this? Because this feels wrong. Like, her mom is saying, like, super racist things to the bulgogi boys in the food court, but she's super okay with her daughter being gay. Like, none of this tracks with me. Hmm. But it's, like, true to her experience, and I think probably true to her experience from 10 years ago or something, which I think is, like, an interesting thing of oftentimes when you have YA authors, they're speaking to their own experiences in high school and college, and the world has changed a lot in even like five or 10 years since they have been in that. It just, it was an interesting sort of thing where I'm like, Allison, write whatever stories you want with Asian protagonists. Like you don't just like look it, like you are it, whatever your identity is. And then part of me being like, but I judged you and I feel bad, sorry. Which is why I looked it up. But back to the original point, which is they didn't have distinct voices. My theory on that is always, you kind of become the person that you're with sometimes. Mm. Like you have the same opinions, you start saying the same phrases. And if they've been hitching a U-Haul with each other since they were like 18, they probably have like morphed into a very similar person when it comes to like how they speak. Right. And I'm sure they were reading each other drafts and getting feedback on it. And they both like value the same things in writing, having been together for as long as they've been together. And they got their major together. Like they had the same writing major that they got together, Hmm. which is also like a romantic thing. Yeah. Both people to be successful writers together i feel like they're classic things that can encounter jealousy mm-hmm. yeah so i think a good place to start with this one is that both of the characters have a very clear need versus want storyline mm-hmm. alex wants to prove that she's a good person she wants natalie alex is it seems usually the most charismatic, hottest person in the room. And so it makes sense for her to be dating the rock star on stage, hottest person in the room. Mm -hmm. She wants that. She wants that for herself. She wants to prove that she's not broken, that she can be in a relationship. And so she sees Natalie, the rock star, as a proxy for having accomplished that. And so like those are the things that she wants. What does she actually need? Actually, my favorite character in the entire novel, who I didn't mention in the summary, is Jim, her boss at the food truck. Yeah. Obviously, like, what she needs to a certain extent is a level of intimacy, which is what Natalie's telling her. But what she really needs in order to be able to be intimate with other people is to, like, come to terms with her own relationship with her mother and set boundaries. The interlink between boundaries and intimacy is very difficult. In particular, Alex struggles with knowing the difference there. Mm-hmm. She like overgives of herself in a way to like avoid the intimate conversations. That's interesting because I don't think that that answer necessitates Molly. Like I don't think that Molly is the path to that for her. Or is she? The reason that Natalie is having a hard time creating relationships is because she's not creating boundaries with her mother. But what she is doing by not creating boundaries with her mother, because she's super linked to this woman who's a complete mess, is that she hides that part of herself. 
Yeah, she certainly hides, like, her vulnerability. She puts up the wall of being the hottest, most charismatic person in the room. And, like, when Molly and her first meet, she does something to, like, push Molly away immediately by making some comments about virginity and, like, making sure that she is essentially subordinating everybody beneath her. She's creating a power structure where sexual experience and, like, being desirable is at the top and she's at the top of that particular source of power and so then like everybody else is vulnerable and she's not and yeah i guess molly is is a pathway to her seeing situations where being hot and charismatic isn't necessarily the most valuable thing or the most powerful thing in certain situations and then like letting herself still be there like going roller skating is a good example of this like going roller skating with molly like you can't look cool roller skating if you don't know how to roller skate. And yet she goes there. She, like, lets Molly be powerful and lets herself be vulnerable in that situation. And then that, like, allows her to set boundaries in other places, I guess, mm-hmm. because she's able to recognize that and not necessarily be the most powerful person in the room. To quote the most recent episode of Star Wars, The Clone Wars that I watched, the only way to avoid humiliation is through humility. Mm. You've been avoiding the Star Wars for so long, and now it seems we can't avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm all in. (laughs) Um, No, totally. The thing that I thought was very interesting is the contrast of the relationship with each of their mothers. Yeah. And also in the interview that I read, apparently they did not realize that their relationships with their mothers were completely opposite until their editor pointed it out. And they were like, wow, we've unpacked things about our own relationship that we didn't realize until we wrote this book. (laughs) Wow. Classically, like Alex is in an avoidant relationship versus Molly is in a very like anxious Mm -hmm. partnership, which obviously is partially because her mother is adopted. I think it's like hypothesized. And so her mother's like super needy and is like, I need to talk to you every second of every day. And why aren't you responding? I've given you like three minutes to respond and you haven't responded yet. Are you dead in a ditch? Mm -hmm. Which is in some ways like impeded Molly's development because she also doesn't have friends. I think it's like, how do two women get to high school and they've never had a friend before? Right. (laughs) It's because of your mother in both situations, but in very different ways. Right. Like they have completely opposite relationships with their mother. However, there is some important things that they have in common and that both of them feel totally responsible for their mother's feelings. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in Alex's case, totally responsible for their mother's everything. But they're both carrying that burden that they need to, in some ways, mother their mothers. Mm-hmm. Molly feels that she's constantly the source of whether or not her mother is happy or not. And so she needs to like manage the emotional stress of her mother and then Alex obviously with the drunken phone calls has to manage the not only mental health but physical health of her mother yeah and that's hard beyond that a notable difference is that Molly has somebody in her life who loves her unconditionally like even though she feels responsible for her mother's emotional health Mm -hmm. when she shows up and she's like you know don't be mad at me the mother's like what I love you like none of this matters there's nothing that Molly can do that is going to make it so her mother doesn't isn't going to show up for her honestly it would surprise me that Molly had never had friends before because she has like a real like honest relationship with her mother and her father and her brother and that they like all know who her crush is and they're all like really supportive and I'm sorry like you've never had a friend before <laughs> yeah i know i guess there's a part of me that like likes to believe that if you have been raised in an environment of unconditional love and your brother's like the prom king or whatever that you've learned how to make friends but maybe that's not the case yeah i remember when i was reading the book we were traveling together and i remember saying something about how there's like very little male 
like all the love interests, all the friendships are female. Mm-hmm. There's a lot less male energy in the book than previous books we've read. Having said that, Molly does have a father whose name is Charlie Parker, like the famous saxophone player. Oh, of course. Like, it had nothing to do, but I saw the word Charlie Parker, and I was like, wait, when does this book take place? Like, is that, a, is that, a, is that what's happening here? But no, that wasn't, that wasn't <laughs> what's happening here. Their fathers are both absent. In Alex's case, the father is, like, actually absent and, and is nowhere. In Molly's case, the father just, like, isn't in the book, and he makes one dad joke in the very beginning and then is gone for the rest of it. But they do both have an important male character in their life. Molly has her brother, who is like a safe green world space for her throughout the book. Like anytime she is distressed, she can just go to her brother's house and like have a pizza. And a He'll ton. make her pancakes. Yeah. Oh yeah, pancakes. And everything's fine. And in the case of uh, Alex, it turns out to be Jim. Mm-hmm. And that relationship really is sweet, the Alex-Jim relationship. Yeah. Obviously, there's the, the big moment when they drive all night. But what I really liked about that moment is it wasn't... Like, neither of them are particularly sentimental. And so, like, that's not actually what Alex needs in a friendship slash relationship. She doesn't need the, like, corny, hug-it-out moment. She just needs somebody there to, like, show up with her. Mm-hmm. And so they, he, like, shows up with her, takes her there... And at the end of it, rather than it being this like emotional, like, hey, thanks, Jim, whatever. Instead, she just goes, hey, you know, sorry, we didn't make the food truck. And he's like, God, oh, they always put us near the bathrooms, those effers. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, those effers. And like, that's the that's the relationship that they have. They just need each other to be mad at the right things together. And I think also that both of those characters, Molly's brother and Jim, the food truck owner, are like a slightly more evolved version of both of them. Mm. Her brother is a version of her that could be popular and have friends. And Jim is someone who's been able to work through to the end of his alcoholism. I mean, you never stop working on it, but just like he's in recovery and that's really important to him. And there's something that's like incredibly safe about that. Yeah, I really like that idea of those two characters being more evolved versions of the two protagonists. In particular, like you see Alex when Molly gets hurt playing rugby she immediately goes and gets ice and like she shows up she like is there she does what she needs to do to be present and helpful in a moment of distress and that's like exactly what jim does he just does it in this like even more evolved way than she does so yeah i could see like that she grows into being an authentic jim like character right and there's multiple ways that you can be like a friend or a mentor i think alex feels sensitive that you know she's not like cora who immediately like runs to molly's side and is like oh is everything okay and is very like feminine about the whole situation and like taking care of and like how's your bruise and alex is a practical person it gets the ice and comes back and Molly's character is like, oh, she's breathing so heavily. She must have run so fast. Mm-hmm. There was something that was like really beautiful about that moment, which is also how to be a friend is different. And I think they both have an idea of like what it means to be friends with someone and kind of like what being friends with someone is like being yourself. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, leaning into your yeah. strengths there. Yeah, leaning into your strengths. So if we return to the want versus need, Alex wants... Natalie like wants this like safety of the place where she's powerful and that's what she thinks she wants but what she needs is actually more of that Molly type of friendship where it's like a a safe space to be vulnerable and to like put your sword down for a second and then open up to that kind of uh, emotional honesty yeah so if we play that same game with Molly 
Molly wants Cora. She like has a version of herself that she sees as dating Cora and having lots of friends and going to college parties and not having her mother be her only friend. And she sees Cora as a proxy for that lifestyle that like if she can find a way to get Cora to like her or if she could get Cora to date her or she can whatever, then she'll have friends like all these other things that that like version of herself that she fantasizes about will just like be spawned into existence. So that's what she wants. And that's when I had a lot harder time, I think, trying to identify, like, what is it actually that she needed throughout the book that she gets at the end that, like, has her talking about finding her true self and all that. Right, because, like, the whole thing is, like, she finds her true self, that she doesn't need to wear the red dress just because Cora likes it. Right. That the best date is actually just going to the roller rink that she loves. Even, like, her mom, like, don't hate me. Oh, my gosh, I love you unconditionally. And I think... It's that Molly needs to find value in herself, mm-hmm. like that she finds herself worthy. Yeah, like Alex doesn't need that. Alex like knows where her worth is and like knows where she can be like a powerful person. But Molly has no idea. Like she doesn't know what her social self looks like because she's never been social. She's never been to the you know rock concert or party and doesn't know what it's like to have people around and so she has a version of herself like a fantasy version of herself that she thinks is what she wants but it turns out that it's like not the type of person that she's actually going to be at a party and it's also like not going to fulfill her need right like what she actually wants is for people to want to be her friends and to date her for who she actually is not because she's wearing the red dress right 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 so she wants to be this person that wears the red dress and that cora likes and i don't know horror movies or whatever yeah but she doesn't actually want those things like that's not what the need is the need is for her to like have genuine interests watch the movies that she wants to watch wear the dress she wants somebody to like her anyway rather than to like change to be somebody that is likable they also like try to fold in the idea that she's like untethered by her own identity and that's what's like causing a lot of it, especially her understanding of her own Korean American identity. Yeah, yeah. Like if you're untethered with who you are at your core, it's hard for you to see yourself and know yourself and value yourself. Right. And her mother, her only friend, is part of what has made her untethered to some of her part some parts of her identity. Right. Who thinks that a part of her is gross? <laughs> Like, the Korean part of you is gross. Who knows what they put in their bulgogi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meat? I don't know. I don't know what you think they're putting in bulgogi. <laughs> right. That's that's an interesting point. Of, yeah, that she's been conditioned to think a part of her self is gross. And so she's looking for a new version where, where that void is. She's looking for a new version. And she sees whatever Cora likes as being a path to finding that new version. Like, I like Cora. If Cora wants the red dress, then, like, maybe that red dress will fill the void of this part of me that I think is gross or that I've been conditioned to think is gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was also, like, the mother saying, you know, when you're around Alex, you're, like, more of you. And I don't know, there's something that always grates on me, and I don't know what it is about this, like... It's like the same sort of discourse as finding the one or finding your true self and that like that this is something that is possible. And some of these books sometimes lean into that discourse. And certainly Molly and the Molly sections leaned in pretty heavily to this like I need to find out my true self and this like very on the nose journey. Yeah, I think that's where it felt most painful to me that they ended up together at the end because you can find some of these things through regular friends. (laughs) Yeah. And at the end of this book, neither of them have friends still. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> right. Like, right. if they had leaned into, like, that girl, Abby, who was, like, terrible, who was like, oh, I don't understand any of my physics classes. Yeah. It felt like women are for dating, men are for friends, but, like, only a little bit, and they're never really going to talk about their emotions. I was like, this is a very sad existence you all lead. Like, you can just have regular friends. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like neither of them learned how to have friends by the end of this. No, no. Like, they could have pivoted and, and Cora could have become a friend or something. Obviously, Natalie couldn't. Natalie was terrible in, in a bunch of different ways. But yeah, they both end completely friendless other than the brother, the mother, Jim, maybe. But like, yeah, there's no, no female friendship. Female friendship is not possible in this book. Yeah, which is just like a bummer. I mean, it seems like Cora has female friends. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Cora has uh, quite a few, it seemed, actually. So yeah. Well, she's on the yeah. rugby team. Oh, choosing your major was like a big theme that I thought about a lot while I'm reading this book. Yeah, I had some thoughts there too, because there's all this like, no, you can be an English major if that's the thing that you love. And being an English major, I'm like, no, you shouldn't. You probably shouldn't do that. No, you really, like, <laughs> that's terrible advice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can you can read as a hobby. You don't need to spend a lot of money to, to read better. <laughs> I mean, pre-med is going to be a lot of work and a lot of loans. And I'm like, there might be a faster way for you to make money. Have you considered computer science? Right. And especially with Alex, Alex needs a safety net. Like, she can't just, I don't know, man. I was totally on board with Alex being pre-med. Made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And just the amount of judgment. I don't think they actually ever unpacked that amount of privilege. Yeah, they never did. It was totally leading that way. No, we have like different economic realities. And it's also not like at the end, it's like a Victorian novel where it's like, we're going to get married. And so you get to have my family's riches. And so major in whatever you want, my love. Like, you're still just like freshman. (laughs) Girl needs her pre-med major. And part of what I liked about this book was it was almost like a Sally Rooney book or like the new book that came out this summer, tomorrow, 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 where the two protagonists in different contexts are powerful people and so like molly is obviously way more privileged in terms of family and wealth and all sorts of other things but alex is more privileged when it comes to like social charisma conventional beauty and all of those other things and when they're put in different situations those intersections of power compete and they need to reconcile them between themselves like there's an ethics of care between them where they need to figure out how to react to things and like what's the best reaction for the relationship between them given those intersections of power and that's one of the things i really liked about the book and they like flirted with that Mm -hmm. in these conversations about the major but they never actually dig into it yeah they basically just like both sides it where cora's like well i think you should just do whatever you love and you're like oh gosh cora's got some problems we see why she's not going to be the girl in the end and then molly just kind of like half asses it half to cora and half to alex it's not satisfying yeah it's not satisfying because that's molly's moment to realize that she has the privilege of even thinking about these things in a way that she does and that alex doesn't and it doesn't seem like she ever has that moment of realization that perhaps she is powerful and alex isn't in that moment like you get much more of that at the roller skating rink where she's like, oh, I have power in this particular content. And that's like such a superficial thing yeah. compared to like structures of wealth. Yeah. And, and maybe it is okay, quote unquote, because it's like a novel and you want them to have the happy ending where they're fulfilled in like all ways. Yeah. Plus, like this is the love story of these two 
English writing majors who went to college together who are now both professional writers and it worked out for them. Right. It worked out. Yeah. And so yeah, keeping that in mind that you sort of know the ending as you're reading it, ultimately it's fine. But in 99% of the situations, stay pre-med. Yeah, stay like pre-med. I Be an engineer. agree with you as someone who was like an arts major. I'm like, this was a terrible idea. Why did anyone let me do this? What do you think the benefits of being an English major are? I mean, that- like both of us at the end of the day do fine. But like, why do you think that is? Dude. A lot of people cannot write to save their lives. If I've learned anything by being a professional person in society, it's that people cannot write yeah. and put together a coherent idea. So that's one thing. Yeah, so we always look good in emails. We look great in emails. Well, I don't know, not me. I, I still have a lot of typos I can't spell. <laughs> as well as being able to work through an argument, I think is mm-hmm. really important and be able to talk about hypothetical situations. Like I think that what literature does better than other things is it helps you with empathy and creative forecasting in the same way that when people say like they're pre-law it's a lot of like philosophy it's a lot of like imagination it's a lot of like learning how to craft an argument and i think all of those are really important soft skills that very few people have that i've seen in the world right i've seen that with philosophy majors too which is another sort of equally abstract humanities thing where people who are philosophy majors like they actually understand how to be in a meeting and recognize like, what the core issue is like take that out as a concept and like put that on the table for everybody to discuss rather than talk around it for forever mm-hmm. yeah so those are soft skills that you do get a lot of practice in if you are a major in philosophy or you're in literature the other one i've seen is just like understanding narrative helps in interpersonal situations where if you can recognize the story that somebody's telling about themselves mm-hmm. you can you can adjust like i definitely yes. see that as valuable as a teacher N- and not just dealing with students but also dealing with parents of students where it's like okay what is the story this person is telling themselves about what's happening right now and then once i understand like what type of story i'm in i can behave appropriately given that situation and I also see that with English majors that we know that have become like project managers places where in meetings they understand the story that we're trying to tell. Right. It's like Sometimes it's like basic perspective taking and empathy is what literature teaches you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I always tell my friends, like, if he doesn't read literature, it's a red flag. Like, you need to read fiction. People who only read nonfiction, there's something wrong with them, in my opinion. Yeah. I, you know, I, I want to believe that. And I think that I often default to a belief in that. But, like, I know a lot of really bad people that read fiction, too. Oh, yeah. Like, there are professors in college all the time that, like, get called, like, in Me Too kind of things. And you're like, but you're a professor. Like, you've written articles on this thing. Like, how did you not see that you're the villain of that story? Like, how did you not see it? (laughs) Well, I think one, quote, unquote, benefit of creative thinking is that you're able to talk yourself into anything. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, you can tell your internal story of yourself is so strong. That you yeah. don't recognize. Yeah. Also, like, society really loves, like, an antihero right now, so... Dark Brandon. Dark Brandon. <laughs> I feel like the book was trying to create direct comparisons to a couple of different books. So Cyrano, de Bergerac, obviously. A little bit of... They talk about Twelfth Night. Especially just, like, an honoring of the classics, which I know... What is a classic and why is it all Western? Is a conversation you and I have had... Yep. But I'm curious, because I actually thought this was going to be way more Cyrano than it was, and it was yeah. far less Cyrano. Yeah, it was far less Cyrano. 
than I thought it was. Right. So the things it has in common with Cyrano, I guess, are just, it's like Hitch, right? Where it's like the person who is the expert on getting the girl is teaching somebody who doesn't know how to get the girl to get the girl. In this one, obviously, the mentor and the mentee fall in love, which doesn't really happen in Cyrano for obvious reasons. The heteronormative nature of classical literature, (laughs) for example. I mean, I like that, that it like took the Cyrano Hitch. What's that book that started the whole pickup artist probably just called the pickup artist like that kind of trope that has like deeply misogynistic roots and just feminized it just like completely feminized it and then had the mentor mentee relationship grow into a like co-mentorship and ultimately relationship which is cool like it just started off one way and just went a completely different way with Twelfth Night, the only real comparisons other than the mentions that I could see is just the key moment of, okay, I'll pretend that I'm the person and then you talk to me like I'm the person and then we'll figure it out. Like that's a, that's a very Twelfth Night moment that happens in a bunch of different scenes post Twelfth Night. In no situations, the two people do ultimately end up together. So this was exactly that. I think maybe what I was missing, and maybe just because, you know, Molly ended up having a stronger sense of self than I thought she would, is I wanted her to fake it more. Because I think that's a big part of, like, when you think about Cyrano or Twelfth Night. From the beginning, you're like, it's not just about wearing the red dress or watching the grudge, which I actually don't think are bad compromises in a relationship. I was like, this is, of all the ways that you're quote unquote compromising yourself, I think these are fine. Like wearing the dress that your partner likes you even better, fine. Watching one bad movie, fine. Listening to Broadway musicals, always fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, right. The Broadway musicals and in particular, just like watching a movie, those things are totally fine. I think the red dress, maybe you start getting into a little bit of like, well, I'm more comfortable in this other thing. But those other things are perfectly reasonable compromises in a relationship. Like versus like Cora doesn't have an understanding of privilege, which is really fucked up. And she's really messed up when she talks to my friends about it. Like that is a reason not to date someone, but maybe be their friend a little bit. And I think with the movies, really the essential problem there actually wasn't that it's an awkward compromise. It's that Molly wasn't being honest about saying, you know, horror movies aren't my favorite thing. I'll do it. And that would be fine. Like I'm excited to do this because I'm excited to watch it with you but I'm not actually excited for the thing in itself. And if she was more honest about that, I think it would have been fine. But the problem there was that she wasn't. She was pretending to enjoy it authentically when she doesn't. Yeah. And I think there, there was just like a weird area versus much more clear in Cyrano and Twelfth Night. For example, Alex says right away, do not text Cora back, Molly. Just don't do it. And Molly's like, that doesn't feel right. I'm going to text her back. That doesn't feel right. I'm actually going to wear this other outfit for at least one more day. She does actually have a stronger sense of self, which maybe is a good thing. But it makes the trope hit less hard when you're not actively pretending to be something you're not. Yeah, that's true. To quote someone else's words and present them as your own or to be wearing a completely different outfit where someone thinks you're completely something that you're not. Like, I don't think Cora ever thought she was something that she fully wasn't. Like, she didn't think that she was good at rugby. No, no, that's 100% true. In, In the Cyrenaic trope, the person always has to be something that they're not in order to see what they actually are. And in this one, she never actually moves into that, which, like... It's fine. Like, that's a meaningful distinction to make. Like, I don't know if I can put a value judgment. Like, it doesn't need to be a one-for-one, a Cyrano. Like, I think that that difference is actually an interesting difference, that she doesn't need to inhabit the personality of somebody else in order to find herself, that she actually had a pretty strong sense the entire time. I like those books that allow the person to return to themselves, even though they've never left themselves. Mm. 
This even mm-hmm. happens in things like A Christmas Carol, where like Scrooge's backstory actually has him be the person he ends up being at the end. And so it's like a return to himself that he left behind. And it's certainly true of Alex, right? Like Alex is somebody who like is active. She like does the practical thing. And so she becomes more herself as the story goes on and is able to return to that self, but more self-aware. Man, I'm really glad that I know that the authors end up together because at the end of this book, I wasn't convinced that like Alex was not going to like really have a panic attack about being in a committed relationship and then run. (laughs) (laughs) because like the whole point is like she's supposed to prove that like she can be friends with someone yeah and she doesn't prove it no 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 i mean she ends up dating her friend rather than uh, her aspiration i guess is like the story that we're supposed to take from this but i do wish that she had a real friend by the end and i i wish it was in a like alex kind of way where it was like that she could just drop by somebody's house and be quiet with them like i feel like that's a good alex friendship which, again, she kind of has with Jim, but that's like a men you can be friends with, but women you date. It's okay. I got to believe they have friends now. There were friends that they referenced in the acknowledgement section. So they exist. Yeah, the acknowledgements was fun to read. Them like reflecting on a process of writing a novel together. Mm-hmm. Well, do we move on to IB questions? So our IB question is, texts frequently present two or more realities, which are often very different. Referring to the work that we have just discussed, show to what extent and in what ways the writers have made use of the interest and tension this creates. Okay, so we've got different parts of this question. The first part is that two different realities exist, which is certainly true of a double narrator book. The second part of the question is to what extent and in what ways have writers made use of the interest and tension that this creates. So we have to talk about this like intrigue or this tension between two different worlds. How does the author leverage that tension? I think that this question is probably more intended for like Shakespearean dramas that have a green world where there's like Athens and A Midsummer's Night's Dream and then there's the forest and there are like two very different places or Belmont and Venice and A Merchant of Venice. And then like there's a tension. In this one, both of them exist in the same exact place, but their realities are completely different and often aren't shared. So, like, Alex has a very secretive life. Nobody even knows about her mother except for Natalie. Like, her world is completely separate from her social existence, but it exists. And so I think you could probably answer this question. You don't even need to do the Molly versus Alex thing. You could probably just do Alex with, like, college campus is her green world. Her existence at home that nobody knows about with an alcoholic mother is a completely separate reality. So that would be a path, but probably not the the best path for this. You have brainstorming thoughts? I feel like my thought is more about like what they view the realities are, as well as like your classic rom-com trope of miscommunication, mm-hmm. where like we as the audience can tell that they're in love with each other, but they in their own heads can't. Mm-hmm. And like that's the main thing that all rom-coms create is like that sense of dramatic tension. We know they're in love, but they don't know they're in love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that something that's interesting with a dual perspective, I'm thinking about the version of the novel that's only Molly's perspective or only Alex's perspective. Mm-hmm. From Molly's perspective, the first interaction she has with Alex is so negative. It would be very hard for me to climb back to wanting her to be with Alex. Yeah. Because if I did not get the opportunity to be in Alex's head, Alex is very cruel to her in the first party and like almost like mocks her realizing that she's in love with Cora, which is pretty cruel. Yeah. And then I think if it was told from Alex's perspective, it would be, but why Molly? Right. Molly's boring. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, like, is she really, like, a worth <laughs> spending your time on her? Right. If it was just Alex's perspective, you'd be like, okay, Natalie's not right, but, like, Molly? I was like, is that, have you thought about Cora until you found out about the whole privilege thing? Cora feels like <laughs> like a natural thing for both of them to want in the abstract. Like, I understand from both the perspectives why Cora is interesting. Yeah. From the initial meeting of both of them, if I didn't know the other person's, again, like, want versus need bar, them coming together as a couple wouldn't make sense to me as much. Right. So we could take this question and think about it in terms of the want versus need. Like there is the reality of Natalie's life that she has this this like particular void, this like thing that she needs fulfilled in her life. And Molly has a completely different reality. So even though they're attending the same college or like in the same classes, that there is a completely different void and a completely different therefore reality that she exists in. And that there's a tension there and both of them have the potential to round off the edges and like help each other be that person that they want to be ultimately or that to be more exact, the person that they need to be in order to be self-actualized. And I think there's the other thing we've talked about is they're in different realities when it comes to like socioeconomic privilege. Yeah, I think you like first spend time in the essay establishing that they have very different family lives and that those are two completely different realities. I really wish they had dug in deeper into this theme the more that we talk about it with the major and stuff. But like when Alex like, we need to invite Cora to breakfast. Like that's how we're, she talks about how long she is. She's like, let's go invite her. And then Molly adds at the market, which is like on the student food plan, but ad hoc, it's like 20 bucks for you to go per meal. And Molly's like, it's fine, I'll cover it so that you can go with us. Right, and that positions her in a space of power. Like, that's one of the first times that she's in a space of power compared to Alex is that she has to be the one paying for things. But, like, it also doesn't matter to her. And that's, like, that is the important thing. Thinking about money is just not in her reality at all. She doesn't need to work in a sweaty food truck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the sweaty food truck as part of Alex's reality is, like, not in Molly's story at all. Like, she, she barely even knows that this exists. She just knows that Alex works at a food truck she doesn't even know the reality of what that means to work in a food truck, how hot it is, the bathroom breaks, the like yeah. dealing with people and how bad they are. She gets like one scene where she sees, she's like, oh, it looks like it's way hotter in there than it is out here. Alex isn't looking as flirty as she normally does, but it's still not understanding exactly the gulf in your two realities in that moment. Yeah. And so I think that's how the authors use that tension to create the work of art that they want to create they're using that tension to say both these people have different realities that create different voids and different necessities for them and that each of them can possibly be a pathway to fulfilling those things and like that's that's what the tension does like i can't tell if they intentionally were like oh alex has pretty privilege or that she is just like more confident or she's just more white and more blonde. That's true. We never really learn about how hot or not Molly is. We can assume that she's... Yeah. Like, Cora doesn't know anything about her and is interested in her. Yeah. Not that we should just talk about how hot women are, but, like... Because, like, something about Cyrano <laughs> that's important is, like, oh, like, the dude that Cyrano is pretending to help is, like, hot in the right status. The dumb hot guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it tracks that she would be interested in him from that very high level versus we have no signal why Cora wants to be with Molly. If we were told Molly was hot without her glasses on, it would make a lot more sense. I mean, it, it's it's like fundamental to Alex's character. Like Alex says multiple times and there's a tinted at all the time where she's like, yeah, I know. I'm super hot. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
and like that they're more she's more comfortable just in her body generally like when they're in changing rooms and things even if they're perhaps equally attractive alex has the privilege of knowing it of like having the confidence in her physicality. Also, this is a complete tangent, but in that dressing room scene, Molly's like, oh yeah, I've gotten out of having to change in front of people because I got out of high school gym by volunteering at the office. Is that a real thing in, in the state of Pennsylvania? I don't know because I grew up in Illinois where we were forced to take gym from sixth grade until 12th grade where we had to change. But I feel like there was not a way I could have gotten out of getting undressed in front of other girls. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> To bring it back, it's important to the narrative that Alex is confident in her physicality, whereas Molly's not. It's a place where she has power because there's very few other places where she has power other than like sexual experience and things like this. Which is an extension of being hot. Which is an extension, yeah. And being confident with that. And needing that to survive. Right. Like She has to use her physicality to survive, or at least has to is the wrong word, but she has found a way to survive by using her physicality. Right. Like even in the opening scene where she's like, I need to find a place to sleep. All my options are women that I've slept with. And then she calls up some person and is like, but we're not going to sleep together. I just need to physically sleep before I go to Pittsburgh. And then she's like, I'm not interested anymore. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think we've done it. What do you want to read next month? I do enjoy being in the zeitgeist. As do we all. Which is why, you know, all I do is rewatch... 10-year-old television. I feel like I know where you're going with this because there is one book <laughs> over the last year that is the number one book in the zeitgeist. Yes. Tell me about it. I mean, you're either going Evelyn Hugo or you're going It Ends With Us. Like, those are the two books. They seem to be must-reads because of book talk. As they said in this novel, book talk is basically God, so we should do what book talk tells us. And the million and a half reviews on Goodreads. I guess we're going to do It Ends With Us. By Colleen Hoover. Which is good. It's timely. There's a, a sequel coming out, I think, sometime soon, or possibly is already out. Oh, and it's a love triangle in Boston. Okay, the sequel is expected to be published in 2022, so it's coming soon. Maybe it will even be out by the time we record the next one. But let's meet up next month and talk about It Ends With Us, because I know that I have a lot of students who have read that one, and hopefully we can get some listens out of it. Yeah, they'll hopefully think that you're cool after you read it. Yeah, yeah, right. Fingers crossed. Finally. <laughs> Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and were produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading It Ends With Us by Colleen Hoover. See you next month. Yeah, I need to find more pathways for people to think I'm cool. No, no, James, you're so based. Is that is that the word? <laughs> based? I mean, I aspire. It's something I work at, so I hope I'm based. <laughs> I think that even discussing based in this way is pretty based. <laughs> <laughs>